0: Now, it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Gospel For this weekend, it appears that Jesus is curious to find out if the people have formed an impression upon him. Now, notice how it begins. Jesus and his disciples set out for the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and along the way, he asked his disciples... Who do the people say that I am? Now, we would say Jesus may be conducting a popular opinion poll. Based upon his preaching and teaching and the miracles that he's performed, what do the people think of him? Have they formed an impression upon him, an identity? Now, what's important here is to recognize where he is. He's exactly where we left off last week, in Gentile territory. Now, as we learned last week, the Gentiles really weren't exposed to Jesus too much. You know, they heard very little of his preaching and teaching. They were witnesses to very few of his miracles because he didn't expose himself or spend a lot of time with the Gentiles. He spent much of his time with the Israelites or the Jewish people. So you could say this is an unfair question to ask the apostles Because the Gentiles really don't know Jesus too well. Now, that being the case, what are some of their responses? Well, it says, some consider Jesus John the Baptist, or Elijah, or still one of the prophets. Now, the one thing we can take from these answers, they're all dead wrong. In fact, they're not even close to coming to Jesus' true identity. Now, if Jesus really wanted to know what the people thought of him, or the impression they have of him, he would have asked this in Jewish territory. After all, he spent most of his time with the Jewish people. It was the Jewish people that were exposed to his preaching and teaching, and they actually witnessed many of his miracles. So if anyone should know who Jesus is, it should be the Jewish people. Now, I don't really think Jesus really cares about what the people know about him, or the impression they have of him. That's why at the very end of his life, he doesn't care that he picks a fight with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that they conspire to kill him. He doesn't care. But I think what he really cares about is the apostles' opinion. It continues on in the gospel. It said, Jesus asked the apostles, But who do you say that I am? Now, this is very interesting. I think Jesus really is concerned about whether his apostles have formed an impression upon him when they truly understand who he is. Now, these apostles have been with Jesus probably for maybe over a year now. Each day they sat with him, they walked with him, talked with him, ate with him. They listened to his preaching and teaching. They're witnesses to all of his miracles. Now, if there's anyone who should know Jesus' true identity, it should be these apostles. And yet, there's dead silence. No one speaks up. Well, we can only take from that silence that the apostles themselves are not sure who Jesus truly is, except for Peter. Peter's the only one of all the 12. He's the only one that answers up and he gets it. He answers correctly when he says, you are the Christ. Now, in Mark's gospel, we don't find out how Peter came to know this. But if you go to Matthew and Luke's gospel, their account of the story they tell us. Jesus tells Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so, God the Father has revealed this to Peter. Now, this is very important for us, very important for us to understand. Peter and the, the rest of the apostles, they make up the church. And for over a year now, they've been with Jesus. You know, surrounding him, listening to him, trying to understand him and his teaching, and they make up the church. And throughout this time, God the Father has miraculously revealed Jesus' identity to Peter because he was in the church and he remained there. So too with us. What we can take from this is that the fullest expression of the presence of God can be found in the church. The full expression of the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his teaching can only be found in the church. That's why it's so important for us to remain in the church. Now, you may say to yourself, well, I see the presence of God in the beauty of nature. You know, I I saw this beautiful sunrise or sunset. It had to be the presence of God. Well, yeah, true, it could be. Or you could say, I saw the presence of God in the birth of my grandchild. Well, sure, yeah. But the fullest expression of the truth, of the knowledge of who God is, can only be found in the church. The fullest expression of the presence of God can only be found in the church. And in the church, we find our doctrine and our dogma, our sacraments and our rites and our rituals. That's what gives us the fullest expression of the knowledge of God and the presence of Christ in our church. That's why it's so important for us to remain in the church now more than ever. Next month, our two parishes will host a presentation given to us by Wayne Larravee, who is the radio commentator, the play-by-play person that does the Packer games. And he's been doing play-by-play for the Packer games for many, many years. Now, he is very famous He's also very Catholic, too. And I spoke to him a couple weeks ago about his presentation at our parishes. It's interesting. He is going to make a presentation about faith and teamwork. And what he's going to do is he's going to parallel the team of the Green Bay Packers and how it is so much similar to the team of a parish. And as we were talking, we kind of developed this analogy, you could say, for lack of a better term. Clay Matthews, who's a linebacker for the Green Bay Packers, suddenly sacks the quarterback and recovers the fumble. Well, in doing so, now he gives the ball over to the offense, led by Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback. Now, does Clay Matthews single-handedly win the game? No, not at all. Now, Aaron Rodgers, with the football, he leads the offense down the field through a series of passes. Now, does he single-handedly win the game? No, not at all. Now, as soon as they get to the goal line, he hands the ball off to Eddie Lacy, who's the running back. And Eddie Lacy crosses the goal line and scores a touchdown. Does Eddie Lacy win the game single-handedly? No, not at all. In fact, Eddie Lacy would not have been able to score the touchdown unless Aaron Rodgers led the Packer offense down the field through a series of passes. But Aaron Rodgers wouldn't have gotten the ball to do that unless Clay Matthews sacked the quarterback and recovered the fumble. And so it was a group effort. And what he's going to stress is the Packers are a team. And a team essentially is a bunch of individuals that have expertise. They have skills and abilities. And they use those for one common goal, which is the success of the team, to win. And in doing so, the Packers are very successful because they come together united under that one common goal, the success of the team. And each member of that team contributes towards that. That's why they are successful. That's why they win games. Now, what he's going to do is parallel that to a parish, any parish. A parish is similar to a team. A parish has a bunch of individuals that have different skills and abilities, and they come together, united under one goal, one common goal, which is faith, and to increase or strengthen that faith for every individual, as well as the faith of that parish community. And that's why it is so important. A parish is united and strengthened under one goal, and everyone benefits by that goal, which is faith and the strengthening of it. Now, for me, I'm very excited about this presentation. I can't wait for it to happen, even though it's a month away. But I think that's what Jesus is really touching on here. Now, one last thing to think about. At the very end of the gospel, Jesus, you could say, tells us a prerequisite for discipleship. It says, He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it now what i want to do is focus on the cross now if you are living in the first century in the roman empire when you hear that take up your cross and follow me it's earth-shattering it's overwhelming why because in the first century in the roman empire The cross was used as an instrument of torture, of extreme pain, and even death. The cross or crucifixion was reserved for the worst of all criminals. And so you know this. And now Jesus tells you, you have to pick up this instrument of death and then go follow him if we are to truly be a disciple of him. Well, upon hearing this, you would say, oh, he's crazy. He's nuts. I can't do that. Now, we, hearing this in the 21st century, with 2,000 years of theology under our belt, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. But being in the first century, well, we would be really shocked at this. Now, remember, the cross before Christ represents a world that is governed by fear and violence, oppression, and even death itself. Death had the last say over everyone in the world. And yet, through Jesus' death and resurrection, He reverses that whole order. Now the cross becomes a symbol of triumph over the worst enemy, death itself. Now, the principal governing factor in our life is not the world or death. Instead, it's Christ and his teaching. But take it to an even deeper level. Before Jesus, the cross conjured up fear and hatred. People didn't even want to think about the cross, let alone look at one or carry it that Jesus is suggesting, but through Jesus, now he reverses that again. It becomes a symbol of self-sacrificing love. As Jesus once said, there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for another. And that's what Jesus does when he mounts the cross himself to save us all. And so, for us to carry the cross means that we have to continue that self-sacrificing love. And I think we do it every day of our life in many different ways. One way is if we pray for other people. If we truly pray for other people, that's self-sacrificing love. We're putting the needs of others before our own. Every time we gather for Mass, we gather to increase everyone's spirituality, to worship God and also pray for one another. Well, that's self-sacrificing love. If we volunteer... In the various ministries of our parish, if we engage stewardship, we share our time and our talent and our treasure for the benefit of the parish, well, that's self-sacrificing love. We're putting the needs of the parish before our own. And see, I think we do that every day of our life. The gospel gives us a wonderful spiritual lesson. We, too, must deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. We do that because that's what Jesus asks us. He initiated it when he mounted the cross. Now we must continue to perform those self-sacrificing acts of love for one another. See, when we do that, then we truly are Jesus' disciples. And then, like Peter, we truly know Jesus' identity as well as his presence in our life. And may the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.